0: From 2017 to 2020, my wife and I lived just south of Denver in Colorado. You may not know this about Colorado, but it's actually the sunniest state in the union. It gets over 300 days of sunshine on average. It can feel like in New England, we get the inverse where we only get like 65 days of sunshine. So even when it's snowing, the sun is shining. It was incredible. A few other fun facts about Colorado. Because of the altitude, there's no mosquitoes, none. And for those with frizzy hair, listen up to this next one. There's virtually no humidity. It's also great to be active. The mountains are where a lot of athletes go to train. It's where I go to train. <laughs> Me and Brian Wilkerson, we go out there. The high altitude conditions, it gets our body ready to use oxygen more efficiently. So on any given day, you might see Brian Wilkerson just huffing it up a mountain, mumbling under his breath, Lord, why can't I look more like the rock? or Forgive me, Lord, I said crap in a sermon. But there is an endless amount of activities to do up in the mountains. You can camp, you can hike, ski, whitewater rafting, backpacking, running, horseback riding, and there's so much more. My wife and I, we would regularly go up on weekends, escape to the mountains to decompress, slow down, and most of the time we would do it with friends. So as we continue our summer soul care series, we've talked about how Jesus is good for your soul, naps, ice cream, road trips are all good for your soul. But honestly, is there anything better for your soul than sitting around a campfire with some close friends and family? For those that I have not had the privilege of meeting, my name is David, and I'm the pastor of Connections for Grace Chapel. You might recognize me if you've been around a little bit because I've been here the past couple of years as our pastoral resident doing goofy things on our Instagram. So as a personal update, it's been a pretty busy spring summer for my wife and I. I graduated from my master's program. I was ordained and hired here at Grace Chapel in this new role, both in May. And then in early June, we welcomed our first child. This is a picture of our daughter, Mia. There are no complications and we are grateful to God for a beautiful and healthy child and mother. And we certainly don't take these things for granted. Slowing down can be a real challenge in our house right now. When I went to college, I remember this meme or this post that said, you'll need three things to do well in college. You'll need time to study, time for friends, and time for sleep, but in reality, you can only choose two of those things. So as a new dad, I'm seeing a similar principle play out. You can feed the baby, you can feed yourself, or you can clean the house. I'm starving. (laughs) I'm just kidding, but really our house is a minefield of bottles and pacifiers and those little baby socks that seem to multiply and get stuck in the couch cushions. And sleep or time for friends, those things aren't even an option right now. Then we add in layers of trying to get back to work and seeing out-of-state family and hosting friends who want to come meet our daughter, trying to figure out date nights and making sure somehow that our dog at least has water in her bowl. (laughs) So life right now is a pretty full plate, but I do want to make it clear. I am painting, painting a picture to set up a sermon. I'm not at all trying to complain. Grace Chapel has showered us with blessings and we want to see out-of-state family and we can't stop showing off our baby when our friends come to visit. So yes, life is a full plate, but it's also full hearts. Because of the newness and the, the joys of life right now, I can honestly say that this season of life has been really good for our souls. However, this is not a pace that we can maintain indefinitely. The novelty of it will wear off, the exhaustion will truly settle in and without sleep, these things that we are grateful for now will easily turn into frustrations. So it's been a hectic summer for us, but I'm sure it's been for you too, even if it's for different reasons. Summer camps for the kids, work for you, trying to plan vacations, trying to travel to see family. It can be stressful to coordinate with extended family. Who's going where, when, and who's paying for what, and then suddenly someone drops out at the last second. Who's gonna cover for them? And then you do get together and there's this drama of someone said something about some politician and all of a sudden it's July 23rd and summer's almost over. College starts in about a month and now there's a group of people whose minds just went off wandering about their roommates and the dorm that they got into and about a a semester that is looming in the near future. Not to mention the anxieties that weigh in the back or the front of our minds. Things like our health or health of a loved ones, tight finances, relational strife, personal struggles with addiction. So as a side note, I want you to know we have an amazing care ministry. So if you are struggling with any of these things that I just mentioned, we are a community that is here to support you and your family. So you can go to grace.org care to learn more about our care ministries. So I'll, now I want to do a quick experiment. Three different scenarios. A few weeks ago, Pastor John led us through a quick mindfulness exercise. It was peaceful and refreshing And this week I want to do the exact opposite. So if you feel comfortable, let's close our eyes, take a deep breath, inhale, exhale. And picture this with me. First, it's a busy office. There's phone ringings, there's printers printing, there's people that are dressed nicely, the people are walking by, people are gossiping, your boss comes, said they want a word with you, your heart rate goes up, you're walking, You're underneath those bright fluorescent lights. Next, you're a middle school teacher. The kids are yelling because they've forgotten how to just talk. You're in front of a screen all day. They're in front of a screen all day. You're repeating yourself a thousand times. There's an active shooter drill. You go to the teacher's lounge. There's constant socialization. You are on your phone all day and you're underneath those bright fluorescent lights. And lastly, Let's picture being a nurse at a hospital. You're on your feet all day, you're constantly needed, doctors are rude, patients are rude, families are concerned, patients are sick, and this person's life depends on you doing your job well. You're walking from room to room, there's no breaks, it's a 12 hour shift, and you're constantly under those bright fluorescent lights. Okay, open your eyes, breathe for a moment, and do a quick check of your breathing and your heart rate. It's probably up a little bit just from imagining it. Plus text messages and emails and the list can go on and on. Right? You can be a clerk at a grocery store. And I, I know a lot of people that come to Grace Chapel are scientists. I don't know what you do, but I picture you running around the lab in your white coats. Or maybe you work at one of the daycares operating out of our churches and there's crying kids and you're holding the children. And listen, nothing is wrong with these jobs. It's just a constant state of stress and stimulation and you're bright, fluorescent lights. We need a space to decompress, connect meaningfully with other humans and create room for Jesus to interrupt our our patterns. Now imagine it's a warm summer evening. The sun is going down. The campfire is crackling. The breeze is blowing. Your heart rate slows down. There's people around the fire with you talking about non-work things. Fire pits, as it turns out, are good for your soul. Even just imagining it has been good for your soul. Jesus was a fan of fire pits too, because important spiritual things can happen around them. It was one of the first things he did after the resurrection. So I want to read the story of what it was like for him to enjoy an early morning campfire with his friends after he rose from the grave. So we're going to be in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. And you can follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So he called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that it is the Lord, he wrapped on his outer garment because he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples had followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And they did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Some quick context about where we are in the story and with the life of Jesus. This takes place after the resurrection. So at this point, Jesus has taught, he's healed, he's fed the masses, he's been tried, beaten, crucified, and killed. So let's take a break, or rather, let's break this passage down a little bit and be critical readers of the word. Sometimes we can read a story so quickly and that we're looking for the big picture that we miss the details that give the big picture its shape. So first, there's only seven of the 12 disciples, and two of them are actually unnamed. We have Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, who are the sons of Zebedee. And John is the disciple whom Jesus loved and also the one writing. But it's important to to note to those who are named, most of them, were fishermen before Jesus called them as disciples. This brings us to our next observation. If Jesus died on the cross, but he never came back, then all there is in life is fishing. It's just life is normal. All there is then is busy offices, chaotic schools, and overworked hospital workers. But deeper than that, let's recall some of the last interactions that Jesus had with his disciples before they'd seen him risen. Obviously we can't speak for the unnamed disciples, but Thomas doubted Jesus. Nathaniel and James deserted Jesus when he was arrested. Peter denied ever knowing Jesus in his time of deepest need three different occasions. John was the only one that actually followed Jesus to the cross, and so his last memory of Jesus is his lifeless body being carried away into the tomb. If Jesus doesn't rise from the grave, then all we are left with is doubt, denial, betrayal, and death, or you can insert any burden that you carry. Resentment, bitterness, envy, greed, gossip, the list can go on and on. We just go back to life as once was. The next thing that we observe is that in spite of their doubt, denial and betrayal, Jesus calls out to them. In a way he's asking, Hey, how's life going without me? Oh, you have nothing? Try again. It's the same miracle he did in his earthly life to call Peter, James and John into ministry in the first place. In Luke chapter five, Jesus uses Peter's boat as a stage to teach from. And afterward he told Peter, hey, go out into the deep water and drop the net. And the catch was so big that the net started to break. He then called them all to follow him and to leave fishing behind. That is until Jesus dies and they don't know what else to do. Peter's first reaction to the first miracle that Jesus did, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. This time, this miracle, Peter jumps into the water and swims a hundred yards to go be near Jesus. But Peter's encounter with the risen Jesus is only just beginning. When they get to shore, there's a charcoal fire. And the only other time that John mentions in his gospel a charcoal fire is to note the kind of fire that Peter stood around when he was denying Jesus at his trial. So Peter may not have noticed this when he first got to the beach with Jesus, but John is cueing the reader in, Hey, something's going to happen here around this fire. Is Jesus gonna deny Peter around this fire the way that Peter denied Jesus? But instead, what Jesus does is he invites all of them to breakfast by the fire. In fact, he cooks them breakfast. So men, take note. You too can work the kitchen stove. And let's pause here for a moment of reflection on the text. Why here? Why now? Why around a campfire? We know that after his death, Jesus' disciples have been locking themselves away hiding from the public. They only go fishing in the middle of the night where they won't likely be seen. They're scared and anxious. They've been living in a constant state of flight or fight. Their heart rates are probably up. Their breathing may be shaky at times, and their blood pressure is most likely higher than it's been in a long time. All they're missing are those bright fluorescent lights. When we think of Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, we tend to gravitate toward the supernatural and the radical teachings. We think of his healings, the Sermon on the Mount, raising people from the dead. But here, the resurrected Jesus, he offers humble hospitality, an invitation to join him around a campfire. Is this really the most important thing Jesus can be doing before commissioning his disciples to begin one of the largest movements in human history? You're telling me there's no talk of strategy? No three-step process for powerful leadership? There's no boardroom pitch with charts and graphs? So as I began to do research for this new role that I'm in as a connections pastor, I really dove into hospitality. Author Will Gordera and his book, Unreasonable Hospitality, has some really great insights that I think are going to help us bring this passage alive today. So two insights that I want to talk about briefly. First, he, he quotes the poet Maya Angelou when she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. There is a little irony here in me quoting her and remembering what she said. And as a preacher, I certainly hope that you, you know, something sticks with you, but the core of the quote is true. People never forget how you make them feel. This is the essence of hospitality. How do we want people to feel when they come into our homes? We want them to feel safe taken care of, seen, understood. We want them to walk away feeling better than when they came in. In New England, we're not really known for our charming hospitality, are we? We're more known for our revolutions and our cynicism. We're known for having thick shells, waiting for people to earn our trust. So let's contrast that with what Jesus here is doing. He's inviting his friends who doubt, deny, and desert him to sit around a campfire with him as he serves them breakfast he has no reason to trust them but hospitality has nothing to do with trusting the stranger but rather going above and beyond to show the stranger that you are trustworthy how do we want newcomers and strangers and people who are different than us to feel when they walk into our church safe taken care of seen understood we want them to feel better walking out than they did when they came in don't we want them to feel like they are Jesus himself. The second insight that Will uh, Guidera has for us comes from a story that he tells about his mother. When he was young, his mother was diagnosed with an aggressive brain tumor and she eventually became a quadriplegic and even lost her voice. Yet every day as Will got off the bus, she told her day nurse to wheel her out to the bus stop so that she could smile and greet her son as he got off the bus. She couldn't carry his bag home. She couldn't hug him. She couldn't even tell him, I love you. How was your day? But I love the way that Will puts it. He says, but she could still smile. At all of our campuses, we have amazing teams of volunteers who greet, open doors, walk you to your seats, serve you coffee, pass the plates and serve communion and help you get connected to the life of our church through hospitality. And on every campus, we are looking for folks to fill those teams. But here's the thing. I know you guys have busy lives with good things. You have to take off after church to get to practice or to a game. You're having brunch with a longtime friend or family that you haven't seen. And the thought of trying to show up early sounds about as likely as Peter trying to catch a fish because apparently he was incapable of doing so. But you know what? You can still smile. Here's what I mean by that. The task of hospitality is not nearly as important as the posture of hospitality. And the task of hospitality is really important, but you don't need to be on the volunteer team to show grace and hospitality to a stranger. A quick smile, eye contact, a hello, go a long way for many people, especially newcomers who are brave enough to walk through our doors. And I'm sure the same thing goes online. A quick chat, a quick hello, a quick wave, it goes a long way. I think sometimes when we conjure images of hospitality, we think of fine linen cloths and silverware on the table that we don't really know what to do with, and floral arrangements. We think of luxury. But it isn't luxury, it's connection. Hospitality creates a connection, which is community. Jesus invited his disciples into an informal, casual setting to connect with them. It's that simple. As much as I love studying scripture and diving into complex or abstract philosophical and theological concepts, this is incredibly simple. Fire pits are good for your soul because they create an environment for human connection. There are no crowds harassing them. There's no agenda to get somewhere next. There's no healing or teaching. Just chatting around the fire. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was really convicted about something, or rather about someone. I was talking with a young adult in our church recently, and he described his spiritual journey and how even though he went to church his whole life, he came to a point where he didn't actually know God. He felt like he never actually encountered God, that he didn't have a relationship with him. So he fell away from the faith for a few years and he did some soul searching. And one day in his college, he, he came across a community of people who were merciful, full of grace, and most importantly for him, they were vulnerable. In spending time with this community, and after a short time realizing that he belonged in this community, he realized he was encountering God himself. This convicted me because I have a close friend who recently had a similar experience of falling away from the faith. He told me in explicit terms, how can I have a relationship with someone that I've never met? I've never met Jesus. And I didn't know what to say. I've personally met Jesus in some spiritual encounters, but My testimony alone isn't enough to make Jesus real to him or to someone else. And I know all the arguments, right? I've been through seminary. I have my degree in this. But after hearing him say this, I didn't know what to to respond with. And then after talking with this young adult, I realized I've not been Jesus to him. I've lacked the mercy, the grace, and the vulnerability that is Christ-like. Maybe he never met Jesus because I never showed him who Jesus is. Maybe he never met Jesus because he never met the spirit of Jesus that's alive in me. So I began to wonder to myself, how can I create an environment where I can show him Jesus? Then I remembered what I was preaching about. First, I know I can't be the only one. It takes an entire community of people to show Jesus. Maybe we can call this community church. Second, I can host a fire pit that is good for his soul. It's it's good for my soul that creates an atmosphere of open dialogue and honest conversation where I can express to him the mercy that Jesus offers him. The same mercy that Jesus is about to offer Peter. We're going to get to it. I have permission and, and you have permission to give and share this mercy with abandon. Maybe I can receive mercy from him too. Fire pits are good for your soul because they create an environment for human connection. And when we connect with humans, we connect with God. Going back to the text, let's take note of what happens next. It's not until after they are well fed and rested from the long night of fishing that Jesus even broaches a difficult conversation with Peter. Jesus makes them a charcoal fire to keep them warm and feeds their bellies. And the more we get into this, the more we start to notice. The the risen Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection and the model of what is to come, he still needs to eat and sit by a fire. Before he has a spiritual moment with Peter, he takes care of Peter's physical needs. There is something intrinsically connected between our souls and our bodies. We cannot tend to one and ignore the other. We need naps to restore our souls. We need ice cream and sweet things to delight our souls. We need fun and travel and pilgrimages. Pil- pilgrimages. Am I saying that right? Pilgrimages. <laughs> we need travel <laughs> so that our souls aren't stagnant. And we need places where our central nervous systems can relax and find peace and find connection with others so that our souls are in a posture and a position to, ne- to connect with God. And then we get to the talk that Jesus has with Peter. So, following along in verse 15, we pick up after breakfast. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him, one for each time that Peter denied him. If you've ever studied this passage before, a lot lot gets made about the words that Jesus uses for love. And if I'm being honest, I've yet to find an answer To this, that really satisfies me or seems consistent, but here's one thing I do know. Jesus teaches us to forgive 70 times, 70 times. And here, he lives it out with Peter. Peter messed up, fell short, and denied Christ three times and three times. It's Jesus who makes it right again, not Peter. He's eager to make it right with you, and he's eager to make it right with me too. So why the campfire? And and what makes them so powerful and conducive to human and even divine connection? Well, the reddish-orange globe of the fire stimulates the production of melatonin, which gets your body ready for sleep. It literally rests your body on a chemical level. The warmth of the fire opens you up and allows you to ease into your chair. The crackling wood creates a sort of white noise that helps you to focus on the people around you and maybe even help you drown out the noise of traffic if you live in the suburbs and the dynamic conversation that is hopefully happening continues to help you to attune and attach to others. Put simply, the ideal campfire setting helps reset and recharge your nervous system. Yet, without Jesus, fire pits are just good for your nervous system. And as Pastor Tim explained, the soul, the soul is part of your mind that thinks, dreams, and worries. It's part of your emotions that cheers, it gets sad and lonely. And it's a part that prays and aches that longs to see what your eyes cannot. That part of your soul needs to encounter Jesus. And the fire pit is an easy and fulfilling way to set the scene. This leads me to clarify. Maybe you're allergic to smoke or you don't want to get wet outside. <laughs> you don't need a fire pit. Maybe you live in an apartment complex that doesn't have fire pits. The point is, create an environment where you feel relaxed and at ease, able to connect with others. It creates an environment where Jesus can offer you what he offered Peter, an encounter. When you are in an environment where you feel safe, seen, understood, and treated like an honor guest, important spiritual things begin to happen. So maybe the scene for you is in a dining room lit by candles for you to enjoy a meal with friends and family or out in the rain playing with your kids. It can be on the beach getting your feet wet in the water, throwing a ball with a friend and chatting. It can happen uh, when you get the courage to go to grace.org slash summer coolers and you attend someone's maybe indoor barbecue or pool party or dog friendly dessert night. It can happen making memories at the camp of the woods. (laughs) If you're a young adult at any campus, I want to invite you to follow us on social media and sign up for your campus newsletter so that you can be in the loop on upcoming events in the near future. And if you're wondering, are you a young adult? If you have to wonder, you're probably not one. But just for clarity, we are trying to keep our young adult age range between 18 and not in high school and 30-ish. We won't be checking your IDs, but we really want to focus on serving that community. So it doesn't matter if you're married or you have kids or anything like that, just come ready to have fun and engage with others and make space for Jesus to interrupt what you thought was a plan for the day. Another way to imply today's message is by helping us to create a culture of hospitality here at church. You can do that by being a greeter in the lobby or an usher, or you can do it by making eye contact and smiling politely at a stranger. Seeing a new family and introducing yourself just to say hi and learn more about them. They may forget the sermon today, maybe they won't, but they probably won't forget how you made them feel on their way out the door. You don't have to be on a beach in Galilee to encounter Jesus, and you don't have to be away in the mountains of Colorado to enjoy a good campfire. Just bring your chair and just be you. Around the campfire, you're not a consumer or a doer. You just are. This is not meant to be an extra task to squeeze into your busy summer, but an invitation to just be who you are. An invitation to create an environment to be with others around the fire pit with Jesus. Amen.